Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Man is himself, is man, only at the surface. Lift the skin, dissect. Here, begin the machines. It is then yourself in an inexplicable substance, something alien to everything you know, and which is nonetheless essential. Paul Valeri Hello, I'm David Getson. We are pleased to announce that our launch through Patreon is off to a great start. It is the best way to support us and get more of what you want to hear. At our lapsuslima.com homepage, click on the orange Patreon icon to contribute. Thank you to our new patrons, Daniel, Felipe, Brian, Denise, and Livio, for contributing and claiming their content already. We had left Walter Benjamin squared off against the forces of fascism. Unlike many of the contemporary militant Marxists, he was not looking immediately ahead to an anti-fascist future of collective action. His increasing disillusionment with the Soviet Union, for example, shows that he had likely grasped the depressing resemblance between the mindless collectivism that fascism and communism shared. Some Western leftists would remain in denial about that similitude until Khrushchev's de-Stalinization speeches of the 1950s. As we again look at his attempts to struggle against fascism within his essay, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, we see how he begins not with that prognostic, prospective stance typical to revolutionary Marxism, but with the diagnostic, retrospective of an art historian. He observed that the material culture around him has already experienced revolution, that it was already drastically changed. Before reinventing the wheel, the agitators would do well to observe how culture had been carried there so quickly to begin with. The central issue at hand is one of industrial production and reproduction, a change so vast and fundamental that humanity had not seen transformation of that magnitude since the Neolithic Age or the invention of agriculture. Industry had disrupted economies and governments, and Benjamin acutely observes the nature of this change by giving a brief history of artistic reproduction. We will shortly get to his famous description of the effects of this change, but we will start with a basic description of the movement away from artisanal production. Benjamin sees the reproductive capability of industry itself, 
not as something altogether new, but as an amplification and acceleration of what had been possible in the past. The capability of industry disrupts the realm of art, just as it would for any craftsman, by amplifying what was previously possible. In principle, a work of art has always been reproducible. Man-made artifacts could always be imitated by men. It is the facility by which we can reproduce and the modes of reproduction themselves that are new. He notes that the Greeks had been aware of only two mechanical means of industry, forging and stamping, both working in metal, the most malleable and durable material available to the ancients. The modern listener may well anticipate where he goes next. Press the plastic but resistant, slow and costly metal against the relatively yielding, cheap, and fast material of, say, paper, and you have printing. This active juxtaposition of paper and metal sparks the fuse of mechanical art reproduction that ran the length of Western civilization, from its late medieval rise to its 20th century recession. Benjamin calls printmaking a special, though particularly important case from the perspective of world history. Within the technique, he frames the gradual evolution of the contemporary visual media he found himself surrounded with. He states that it was during the Middle Ages that Europe departed from woodcut printmaking. Etching and engraving followed for the creation of reproducible images. At the beginning of the 19th century, lithography came into use. While Benjamin doesn't give his readers an exact picture of the difference between these techniques, for the purposes of our discussion, the means are important. Woodcut printing is exactly what it sounds like. The Chinese likely developed it first. A block of wood has an image carved in it. Ink is applied to the surface, and multiple prints are made. In engraving, developed during the European Renaissance, the process is similar to block printing, but with the image cut into metal instead of wood. This allows for much finer lines and a greater number of copies to be made before the printing surface wears out. A century or so later, engraving was largely displaced by etching. In this technique, the metal gouging tools of the craftsman are replaced by chemical liquids which eat away at the surface of the metal. This allows for even finer lines and more subtle and advanced techniques in shading. Much of the world's paper money still conveys an aesthetic sense of etching, with cross-hatching and spaced line effects creating illusions of shape 
and depth. Benjamin cites not photography, but lithography, as the point of departure into a different character of reproduction entirely. Lithography uses the tracing of wax or some other hydrophobic material onto a stone. Ink is spread over the stone, sticks to the unwaxed surface, and is printed onto the sheet. But unlike all the other printing modes, the block image can be endlessly edited as it is being created, without damaging the printing block or the rest of the image. When stamped on paper, the reverse and negative image of what had been laid down in wax is printed. Again, our author does not spell it out for us in the technics, but with lithography, the exact same kind of negative to positive image transfer and reversal that would later become so widespread in photography was already in effect. Newspaper technicians already accustomed to the process of lithography would have found the otherwise unintuitive development of photographic negatives conceptually familiar and comprehensible. Furthermore, the newspaper as a business itself so instrumental to the development and diffusion of photographic technology, would have been nowhere near as successful as it became without lithography. Employing wax on stone, the familiar tropes of rapid, facile production, and even the seemingly modern need for frequent deletion, scrubbing the stone to add another image, began to creep in. The rapid technique of lithography enabled graphic arts to illustrate everyday life, and it began to keep pace with text-based printing. But only a few decades after its invention, lithography was surpassed by photography. But remarking on obsolescence is far from his point. What Benjamin encourages us to see is that what is most important regarding mechanical reproduction is not any specific technology, not the hot, new feature of the moment, but the revolutionary, historical consequence that all of these successive technologies have in common. His generation with Bauhaus master Moholy Naj in particular, whom we will cover in due course, had been over-indexing on the mass potential and specific effects of the visual technologies of the hour, photography and film. Benjamin reminded readers that, as lithography implied the illustrated newspaper, so did photography foreshadow the sound film. His retrospective line of argument shows how film is photography plus time and how photographs are lithography plus chemicals. And to bring the line home, lithography 
is a quick-draw Chinese woodblock with an undo button. Lest we think Benjamin's analysis is too far removed from our own advanced media, he quotes the visionary poet Paul Valéry, just as water, gas, and electricity are brought into our houses from far off to satisfy our needs in response to a minimal effort, so we shall be supplied with visual or auditory images which will appear and disappear at a simple movement of the hand, hardly more than a sign. They were imagining, and our own time has demonstrated, how even the newest internet and multimedia technology is only printmaking and film plus distance. For a summary analysis of media, the essay has done outstandingly well so far, but this is only the start of it. Benjamin has compellingly characterized the broad nature of visual technology stretching from the 1300s to the information age. Throughout this long arc, we see the extant modes of mechanical reproduction following two trend lines. First, an increase in the speed and capacity of reproduction, implicitly lowering cost, and second, an increase in the quality of reproduction. Benjamin stated that it was well after industrial techniques at large penetrated into society that these trends spiked upward and crossed a critical threshold. Around 1900, technical reproduction had reached a standard that not only permitted us to reproduce all transmitted works of art, and thus to cause the most profound change in their impact upon the public. It also had captured a place of its own among the artistic processes. He then proposes to study this transformation through the repercussions on traditional methods and products of two such manifestations, reproductions of works of art and the art of film. And this is where we step through the looking glass. The reader is shown a world where authenticity and originality are proclaimed obsolete, even noxious, and in good Marxist fashion we are slapped awake to the fact that this strange place is where we have been living all along, under the spell of dangerously outmoded ideas. As he will note later in the essay, the camera introduces us to unconscious optics, as does psychoanalysis to unconscious impulses. Before he begins to diagnose any social pathology, the shape of the outdated idea must be dissected and described.
Our new table companion, laying alongside the umbrella and the typewriter, is sliced up with precise initial cuts. Even the most perfect reproduction of a work of art is lacking in one element its presence in time and space, its unique existence at the place where it happens to be. This includes the changes which it may have suffered in physical condition over the years as well as the various changes in its ownership. The presence of the original is the prerequisite to the concept of authenticity. This is a very succinct underscoring of the distinction between mechanically reproduced and traditional art, the presence of an original. When a photograph or film is made, a plethora of copies is the immediate default. To ask for the original no longer makes sense. The original has become, in the case of photography, a moment in time and perspective long and forever gone, or in film, an idea composed by the elements of production. By contrast, the earlier forms of art all have a local artifact, limited to a single existence in time and space. In using the word presence, Benjamin means it both in the sense of physical location and subjective affect. Standing next to a Rembrandt, it is, in one sense, physically present, yet in another, it has an intellectualized presence that is felt. Knowledge of the painter's acclaim, or the painting's age, or that the surface has cracked and been cleaned several times, all of this adds to a feeling that radiates from the original, authentic object. At many art auctions, it is this kind of intellectual halo that is commodified and sold as the real item of value. How else could Jeff Koontz command such outsized prices? Lack of awareness regarding art's presence can also be impactful. Think of all the stories of people who discover and clean a copper Tiffany lamp or antique vase, not knowing that the green patina, the color slowly acquired over the years, is what lends it value both aesthetic and monetary. This imagined but consequentially real quality is the much-vaunted aura which if heed were paid to much of academic discourse, is the main point of the essay. But, as we have already observed, it is only a building block. 
In a move not uncommon in dialectical reasoning, the concept of aura is introduced to demonstrate how it dissolves. Benjamin is arguing that aura withers in the age of mechanical reproduction. This is a symptomatic process whose significance points beyond the realm of art. Finding its most powerful agent in film, mechanical reproduction represents a liquidation of the traditional value of the cultural heritage. Even though reproduction was possible in the past, he argues that the new means are more corrosive to tradition and aura for two reasons. First, operations like photography can enhance the original with color correction, close-ups, and the like. Lately, we have heard of specialists wanting to 3D print Near Eastern artifacts and restore the printed versions to a state better than the original. This is the kind of effacement of traditional value that is enabled with the technical capacity. Secondly, mechanical reproduction can make the copy of the original far more accessible by cost, number, and location in ways that hand reproduction never could have. Far from mourning the passing of aura or lamenting a world where only wealthy patrons pay a premium for the privilege of savoring it, Benjamin celebrates that the two processes described above lead to a tremendous shattering of tradition, which is the obverse of the contemporary crisis and renewal of mankind. It must be remembered that, in 1936, fascism was plucking the spent blooms of tradition and with them knitting false, hypnotic May-crowns that the various national publics were all too happy to pretend with, making their respective countries great again. Benjamin thought that he had hit upon the artistic version of smelling salts, a weapon of anti-tradition that would snap people out of their newfound infatuation with populist sentimentality. As Benjamin saw it, even though whole governments were actively keeping it secret, humanity's mode of existence had fundamentally changed. Therefore, our mode of sense perception must also have changed with it. The so-called avant-garde was mere decadent foreplay. Join us as we follow Benjamin through the blasted landscape of the post-auratic world next time on Lapsus Lima.